0: The following is audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you would like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org. People need the Lord. People need the Lord. When will we realize that people Need the Lord. It is... That song that I was listening to came on my radio. Not really my radio. It came on my phone, through my car. You know, right? It, it, but it came on. It was Steve Green singing it. And um, I, I tell you, it gripped me so hard I almost had to pull off the side of the road because of the impact of that truth. People need the Lord and it was 1983 that Phil McHugh and Greg Nelson sat down in Nashville for lunch and based on the eyes of the waitress Phil said to Greg people need the Lord don't they and Greg said yes people need the Lord before their lunch was over, they had the lyrics, and that's how that song was born. We haven't sung it in a long time. I mean, I, I don't know the last time I, I sang it. I was glad Steve Green was singing it to me. People need the Lord. People need the Lord. At the end of broken dreams, he's the open door. People need the Lord, people need the Lord. When will we realize people need the Lord? Now, let me give you the lyrics. I mean, again, it's been a while since we sang it, so so listen to what they said in this simple little song. Every day they pass me by. I can see it in their eye. Empty people filled with care, headed who knows where. On they go through private pain, living fear to fear. Laughter hides the silent cries Only Jesus hears. We are called to take his light to a world where wrong seems right. What could be too great a cost for sharing life with one who's lost? Through his love our hearts can feel all the grief they bear. They must hear the words of life. Only we can share. As I get older... I feel the compulsion more than ever to share the gospel. And it's not just when I'm here. A guy came to install my uh, new garage door opener. And while he was installing, I get to talk about Jesus. I bought a car this week. Yes, that transmission, whatever, I talked to you about that. The salesman and the guy that was the financial guy both heard about Jesus. You know, it, it, the, Paul says it this way, for when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast. nothing about me, since I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. It's painful for me, it's disturbing for me if I don't preach, if I don't share the good news. And that is, is exactly the position and the attitude of John Mark, who wrote the letter that we're going to explore next. He was an evangelist, and he had one message. He wanted people to know that the servant is on the mission. He uses the word servant often, and I think the key verse for the book, the letter, is in chapter 10. For even the Son of Man, one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. It's an obscure messianic title in Daniel, but Jesus used it a lot. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. When he comes again, we'll serve him. (laughs) That's what it'll be. But when he came the first time, he came to serve and to give his life a ransom. It's the only time Mark uses that word, ransom, to pay the debt we could never pay to set us free. To pay the ransom, his life as a ransom for many. Unfortunately, it's not everybody. Because not everybody chooses to believe. But when you believe, you have that freedom. So what about this guy, Mark? You know, Mark in, in the New Testament, I said he's an eager evangelist. He, this is the earliest recorded biography of Jesus Christ. Most scholars believe Mark was written first, and then Matthew, and then Luke. And they're called the synoptic gospels because synoptics comes from the language see together. And there's a lot of commonality in Matthew and Luke and Mark. And most believe that Matthew and Luke relied on Mark when they wrote down the Gospels. Matthew, of course, was an eyewitness. Luke was a Gentile who did a lot of research. Mark, his name means the hammer. (laughs) The hammer. It's a Roman name, but he's a Jewish man. Which, I don't know the background to that story. We don't know, but... Eight times his name is mentioned. He is an eyewitness to the events of the Passion Week. Very interesting. In the Garden of Gethsemane is this verse. It's only in Mark, it's not in Matthew, it's not in Luke. A young man, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus in the garden. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. He's the first streaker. And I think it's Mark. I mean, we're not sure, but it sounds like Mark never identifies himself in the letter, but maybe he does here. He's an eyewitness, but he wasn't an eyewitness to the rest. Most believe that the upper room was in Mark's house. And that became a place of prayer in Acts 12. When this had dawned on him, that's Peter, he just escaped from prison, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. So it became a place in, in the city, a place of prayer, a place of gathering of believers. And we know that Mark went on two missions trips. He went out with Paul and Barnabas on what's called the first missions trip. And then when they agreed to go again... His uncle, Barnabas, wanted to take him. But uh, Paul wasn't so sure. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. I think Paul was tough at times. You know, like, eh, he deserted us. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company The term sharp disagreement almost mean, I mean it was a serious debate. (laughs) Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus and Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. So the missionary force doubled and Barnabas took a missions trip with his nephew John Mark. There was reconciliation with Paul. The last letter he writes, he says, get Mark, bring him with you because he is helpful to me in ministry. He's profitable. There there was reconciliation. But it's not just Paul that had a relationship with Mark, but Peter as well. This is very striking. She who is in Babylon, Rome, Peter writes, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son, Mark. So he identifies Mark is his son, maybe his son in the faith, Uh, we can't be sure, but this is a season when there's great persecution in Rome, because uh, Caesar blamed the fire on the Christians and started persecuting Christians, and so most believe that Mark wrote down his gospel while consulting with Peter. And that's very interesting. Or listening to Peter's sermons and taking notes and then, and then put it together. So there's a man, a church father, who was a direct disciple of John the Apostle. His name is Papias. And in, 9, in 140 AD, he wrote this. Mark, who was Peter's interpreter, wrote down accurately, though not in order, all that he recollected of what Christ had said or done. For he was not a hearer of the Lord or a follower of his. He followed Peter, as I have said, at a later date. And Peter adapted his instruction to practical deeds. Peter was a very practical preacher, evidently. Without any attempt to give the Lord's words systematically so that Mark was not wrong in writing down some things in this way from memory, for his one concern was neither to omit nor to falsify anything that he had heard. We have other church fathers that attribute the letter to Mark, but this is the strongest of those. Don't forget the Holy Spirit of God is guiding Mark as he writes this letter. It is inspired by God. He is writing Scripture Now, whether he wrote it in the 50s, some think he wrote it in the 50s, um, which would be closer to the actual events. uh, Because in Qumran, in in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found some fragments of Mark that predate the mid-60s, which is what generally scholars today think that Mark was written in Rome in the mid-60s. And then subsequently, Luke and Matthew consulted with it. But remember, this is God's word. So our series is The Servant on the Mission, and today's title is The Gospel Genesis, John Prepares the Way. I want to look at verse one as as we talk about the beginnings. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. There it is, That's, that's his opening words, and it's kind of like a heading for the whole book. The gospel, the good news, was a word the Romans used, actually. The Romans used this word evangelical when they described a victory on the battlefield. Or it is used to describe the birth of Caesar Augustus. Kind of interesting. In, in one commentator says it clearly. A historical event which introduces a new situation in the world. That's what the good news was about. That's what evangelical was about. This gospel then, probably from Mark, becomes a prominent term in the Christian language. He really Christianizes it, perhaps. And Paul used it 80 times. Evangelical means you believe the gospel. You believe the good news. And... Uh, the prophets also used it to announce salvation. It's used in the Old Testament as well. Who is involved? Well, it is, of course, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. Now, Mark doesn't use the term Christ that often, but when he does, it's really significant. In chapter 8, Jesus is asking his apostles, What about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, You are the Messiah. So there appears right there. You are the Messiah. You're the Christ. In chapter 14, Jesus remained silent at his trial and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Quite a statement at his trial. He didn't speak much, but when he did, He did affirm that he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the one that was promised by the prophets and who has come. Here in in chapter 15, in the same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So they're throwing back the title in his face when he's dying for them. If he had left the cross, there'd be no salvation. He also says it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Jesus is the center of this message, and he's also the son of God. He doesn't use that title too much, but Mark is never afraid to affirm that Jesus is God in the flesh. He's never ashamed of that. And here in the very end of the book, when the centurion who had been involved in the crucifixion of Jesus stood there in front of Jesus after he had died, saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. So that introduction is the introduction that John uses. And he says he's just beginning. I love that. He's just beginning because the gospel story hasn't been ended yet. In eternity, a million years from now, I guarantee you, we're singing gospel songs. We're going to celebrate what Jesus did at the cross. We're going to celebrate what Jesus did when he rose again. And how sad that our society mocks this today. Because this is the truth. This is the one who came and died and paid the ransom for all who will believe on him. And that's what Mark wants us to know. That's why he wanted the people in Rome to know about this, that's why he wrote his gospel. And it's the focus of worship in eternity. But it's only the beginning. I love the way William Barclay says this in his commentary. History is not a random kaleidoscope of disconnected events. It is a process directed by the God who sees the end in the beginning. Hallelujah. God had a mission and a plan. And he carried it out through his son. And Jesus willingly and enthusiastically died for us. Was buried rose again and is coming again. So all that truth of the gospel is 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 in this letter. Mark is so enthusiastic. That he keeps using the adverb immediately, immediately, immediately. 41 times in this letter, he uses that adverb to describe what Jesus is doing. He doesn't have a lot to say about his teaching. It doesn't mean he doesn't include teaching portions, but unlike Matthew and Luke, for instance, the Sermon on the Mount does not appear in Mark. But he's active, he's the servant, he's the savior. And we're going to learn so much about who Jesus is by looking at this gospel. I've never attempted this before. I think I'm crazy, really. To say I'm going to start at Mark 1, 1 and go all the way through the book, this is going to take a while. Okay. But I think it's going to be worth it. I think it's going to be a blessing as we look at the life of Jesus Christ. And I want others to know about him. If they're watching online, I want them to know. Like I said... Salesman heard about it. The guy who, you know, in the garage, he heard about it. Share the gospel. Another interesting thing about how he writes, because it's very simple Greek in, in Mark, he uses the present tense to describe past events. Because he wants us to feel that dynamic of Jesus. And I think this is just going to be wonderful. Okay, here we go. Now, There's a preparation. So this is the only portion of Mark where he's not talking about Jesus directly, and he's talking about John the baptizer. He's not a Baptist any more than he was a Methodist or a Presbyterian. He is the baptizer, okay? Let's remember that. All right. So the introduction, now complete, he begins in verse 2. And he says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. This is very strange that Mark does this because he doesn't do this a lot. But he wants us to see the link between the Old Testament prophecies and Jesus Christ and his gospel. Matthew does this a lot. That's part of the reason why I think we put Matthew first in the New Testament. But this quote kind of stems back and reminds us of something God said to them when they first came out of Egypt and went into the wilderness and were set free. See, I am sending an angel or a messenger ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. So there was an angel that went before them when they went through the wilderness. And now Malachi is saying, there's a messenger coming before the Lord comes. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Same words. This is Malachi. Now, the Old Testament is not in chronological order. Okay, it's, it's separated into sections. There's the law or the Torah. There's the history. And then there's the poetry and the wisdom. And then, and then we get to the prophets. And Malachi, excuse me, Malachi is the last one in the Old Testament. And he is the last writing prophet. Okay, so after Malachi, there's 400 years of silence. So, when Mark's introducing Jesus, he wants everybody to know God's not silent anymore. Okay? And he sent his messenger. It's, it's, it's quite interesting, really, the way that um, Malachi describes this messenger. Because in Malachi's day, things had become so corrupt, so obscene, really, they needed purification. And he's saying, I'm going to send a messenger. And judgment's coming, but also salvation. See, I will send the prophet Elijah, Malachi 4, 5 says, to you before that great and dreadful day the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So John is the messenger that was sent by God. Notice, It is my messenger, the Lord says. John didn't just decide, I think I'll be a messenger. No. He had a very miraculous birth, conception. His parents were old. And when he's born, you remember that Zachariah, who wasn't able to speak for a while (laughs) because he didn't believe the angel when he said he's going to have a baby. um, He says, yeah, his name's John, which means grace. They didn't have any relatives named John, but he's named John and actually Luke goes into a lot more detail about all this and talks about how excited Zachariah and Elizabeth are for this boy this John who is the messenger and Isaiah also predicted and that's why this is the predominant quote and that's why Mark identifies Isaiah because in Isaiah 40 Isaiah's 39 chapters About judgment, then are changed in chapter 40 when the first words are, Comfort my people. And who's going to comfort them? The Messiah, the horn of salvation, right? And John is going to precede him. So he describes a voice of one calling, In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And when (laughs) Mark was asked, Who are you? he says, I'm just a voice. In the wilderness, he referred back to this Isaiah prediction. Out of the wilderness, wilderness becomes a real theme here. And we'll see that. What was the wilderness like? They came out of Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness. So the wilderness was a place where God provided for them, didn't He? They ate manna every morning, not on Sabbath, but every other morning it appeared on the floor of the ground. Do you know what manna means in Hebrew? What is it? Like they didn't know what it was. It's wonder bread. Just eat it. It's good. <laughs> and God provided so that their shoes didn't wear out. Their clothes didn't wear out. And it was a place of hope and a place of blessing. Unfortunately, they took a vote whether they should go into the promised land or not. You remember this. And the vote was 10 noes and 2 yeses and Joshua and Caleb said, yeah, we can go in. And the others said, no, we can't do this. They're too big. They're too great. So then they spent more time in the wilderness, 40 years. And it was a time of testing. And it was a time of that. So wilderness has both those contexts. What is interesting, this is like a new exodus. John is calling them out of the city into the remote places of the wilderness by the Jordan River. Like a new exodus because a new day's coming, (laughs) hallelujah. The Savior's coming, and that's what's so blessed to read this, so that's the prophecy, is preaching John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Let's take a moment to look at that. A baptism, yes, he immersed people in the Jordan River, most likely. This isn't like the ceremonial washings that the Jews performed. That was something you did individually. You didn't do it publicly. There are a lot of baths around where they were doing that kind of thing. But his is a unique baptism. And they're coming out of the city and the countryside and they're confessing their sins and then they're being baptized by him in the Jordan River. The the baptism is a sign that they want to be forgiven. They want to be cleansed. They're seeking a Savior. See? And that's why his preaching and his ministry is preparing them to meet Jesus. They're coming face to face with their sins. And you remember, the religious people didn't like John very well. And it was the sinners, (laughs) quote unquote, who were coming out to find the Savior. And John is doing this because John is preparing them for the forgiveness of sins. That's what our greatest need. What's our greatest enemy? Sin. Sin is our greatest enemy. And God wants to send it away. That's what forgiveness means. So we need to repent. That's another part of his preaching. Some of you will remember this guy, Jim Marshall. Remember this guy? He almost made it to the Hall of Fame for football. But on October 23, 1964, he recovered a fumble in the game, and he ran 66 yards in the wrong direction into his own end zone. <laughs> and, and his opponents that day got a safety, which means they got two points and they got the ball back, if you understand football language. When he picked up the ball, he's running in the wrong direction. He was confused. How many of us would say there was a season of my life where I was confused and running in the wrong direction? I was heading to the wrong goal. And God fetched me up by his Holy Spirit and he turned me around 180 degrees. You see, there's always hope. John wanted us to hear that. John wanted us to know that. Jesus also speaks of repentance. It means a change of mind, a change of heart that leads to a change in behavior. I love the way it's said in Proverbs, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper. You try to hide your sin, you try to protect yourself, it doesn't work. But the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. See? So that's the gospel. That's what John was doing in preparing these people in this new exodus, coming out of the city and confessing their sins and being baptized in the Jordan River. How about the person John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist? Hmm. I wore a coat today because my wife told me that when David preached, he wore a tie. So I thought, I better wear a coat. (laughs) You don't care much about how I'm dressed. But imagine if I came in with camel's hair and a leather belt. You'd be a little nervous, wouldn't you? (laughs) What happened to Pastor? He went off the end. So it's eccentric. And Elijah himself wore similar clothing. And he ate locusts and wild honey. He was not a vegetarian. He ate real meat and insects like locusts, the only clean insect in the wall. <laughs> I don't know how they taste. I hope he dipped them in chocolate. I don't know. But that was his diet. So he's very eccentric. And, and, and Jesus says, you know, why did you go out to hear this guy? Why did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet, he's preparing the way for Jesus. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. See, he's quoting Malachi too, also. And what a blessing. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist or baptizer, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So that's what they went out to. And it was the sinners who went out. When the Pharisees went out, he said, you brood of vipers. And when, he's, when they're asking him, what should we do? He says, be a person of integrity. If you collect taxes, don't take more than you're owed. If you're a soldier, do your job well. You see... The gospel changes our lives. It's not just a creed, it's not just a prayer, it's, it's a life change. And that's, that's what the gospel is so powerful. That's why this world needs the gospel. That's why we need to be the gospel carriers. That's what, just, that's what Mark believed. That's what we believe. So he makes one proclamation that Mark records And this is John. After me comes the one more powerful than I. The spotlight is on Jesus. It's never on John. He is not interested in that. He doesn't want popularity. He wants them to see Jesus. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie, which is what the meager slave would do. I'm not even worthy to do that. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And of course, that is fulfilled at Pentecost and the church is born. So John uses a very apt illustration to describe his humility. In the Gospel of John, he says, he must increase. I must decrease. Yep, that's who John was. So, I want to ask the question: How does God use this message to prepare people to meet Jesus today? The first thing we need to come to grips with is our sin. I won't seek a Savior unless I know I need to be saved. You won't either. And the Holy Spirit comes along through the Word of God and His ministry to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin because we've not believed on him. <coughs> Righteousness because he's already gone to heaven. And judgment because the prince of this world already stands judged. And when you come under that kind of conviction, you run to the Savior. See? That's how John prepared people in his day. That's how we are prepared today to meet Jesus. Hallelujah. And every time we run to Jesus and ask him to forgive us of our sins and confess them, what happens? He does it. And if Jesus Christ declares you to be clean and forgiven, you're clean. You're forgiven. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. Or what anybody else thinks. But you must decide to follow him. You must decide. So we go back to the verse. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Dear Lord, thank you for sending your Son. Thank you, Jesus, for dying in our place. Thank you, Jesus, for paying the full debt of our sins. As we come to the table to remember you today, we thank you that you have forgiven us all our sins when we trust in you. We don't come like they did seeking for forgiveness. We come to remember you knowing that we are forgiven in Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from every sin. And so we remember that we're not worthy to come, but you've invited us. And so we're coming today to remember your death for us in the Lord's Supper. You've been listening to audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you'd like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org.